Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I, I can't thank you all enough for listening over the last seven years. We have arrived at our 100th episode, and there's no better person to come on to the episode uh, than Mr. Carl Erskine, who is the most prolific guest we've ever had on. Carl, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Well, always a pleasure for me after a career that was uh, many, many years ago. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to chime in and remember some things. Well, and, and that's uh, where we're going to go today, because just in all this distraction, a lot of people have been watching some of these old games and recognize how much quicker they are. So uh, before we get to your your uh, opinion of pace of play, your experience with it back in the day, um, I just want to ask, how how is everybody out there in Anderson, Indiana, holding up with this, with this coronavirus? I think there's a, a general fear that just how – rough it's going to be. Uh, Betty and I moved away from our, sold our home about a year ago, moved into a retirement village. So we're here with about uh, 80 to 100 people, although we're in a villa, which is separate from the main building. So we're a little bit less uh, threatened than something happening to a large group uh, in the main building. Uh, Our county has been very... uh, blessed to not have any I think we've had a couple deaths but uh, there hadn't been anything widespread so hopefully uh, we're going to avoid anything tragic but right now Betty and I are doing well and uh, we're thankful for that well I'm glad to hear that and uh, you know unfortunately you know, two lives is still too many, but it's still excellent that it hasn't gone completely widespread out there. Um, I was wondering if you can remember any time in your life that there was uh, any type of, of disease scare such as this one, because it, it seems that it doesn't matter whether you're younger or old, this seems unprecedented. Well, in my lifetime, uh, only I recall uh, from being told, actually, I don't know how much of it's my own memory, but I had uh, I had a couple of things happen in my uh, childhood, uh, and uh, at one time uh, malaria and tuberculosis were pretty widespread, and there wasn't as much uh, medication for them. Of course, we we did whip polio, which happened in my era uh, when I was younger. Uh, polio was around until they found a vaccine for it and got it controlled. Uh, that was that was a couple things that threatened in my lifetime. Polio got pretty widespread before they got it under control. So, yeah, those were, but nothing like this. Uh, worldwide, uh, the the whole thing worldwide. No, never saw anything like it or. I don't know how to anticipate it. it's going to be a, a, a finish sooner or later, but uh, there's an anxious time right now in Indiana, and I'm sure in New York especially, maybe Los Angeles were a couple of hot spots. But um, that's, that's what the climate is here. Everybody's holding their breath, but uh, 
there'll be a vaccine developed and they'll get uh, this under control and uh, we won't have such fear. Now, where I live in this retirement village, uh, most of these are uh, seniors in their 80s, mid-80s up, higher. Betty and I are both in our 90s. But uh, so far, we've we've dodged a bullet. Well, Godspeed to everybody out there, as well as you two. Uh, you, you know, I we've always gotten through it, and we indeed, I believe, we will this time as well. So let's take a, a trip down memory lane. You know, distract ourselves from the coronavirus. And a lot of people have been watching these old games. And um, just to give a, a shout out to Evan Roberts of WFAN 660 here. He was talking about uh, uh, when he was watching it, he was just noticing how much quicker the pitchers were working. And, and you know, there, there's always this talk about pace of play. They're always trying to do these little uh, nicks and cuts to, to try to shorten it. And, you know, for better or worse uh, is my personal opinion in terms of some of these modern ideas. But, you know, what he was saying is that it, it stops and starts with the pitcher. So I wanted to kind of go down that, that rabbit hole with you about your opinion of how the pitcher controls pace of play and, and uh, you know, some of your experiences in, in doing so. Well, that's a point that's not in the stats uh, in any one, one pitcher. But all, all pitchers, including me, <clears throat> we had a pace that we just had. It was our personality reflected in the pace of our pitching. But here's something probably overlooked by, uh, by since there's no real stat for it. The catcher, actually, a seasoned catcher, I pitched to Campanella, uh, I think, for about at least 10 years. Campy would not let the pitcher have his own pace if it was too slow or too fast. There was a, there was a strike in between. No play on words there, but there was a strike in between where Campy would control uh, me, Newcomb, uh, Preacher Rowe was a slow pitcher. And uh, Campanella kind of had the control of this, the pace of the pitcher. Uh, I remember <laughs> the infielders got anxious with Preacher pitching because he took so much time between pitches. And so Pee Wee would yell at him from the shortstop. <laughs> and, but the, the, interest, the interesting thing, I think, is that the, the catcher can, especially a young pitcher, but, uh, but I always wanted to pitch too fast when I was in trouble. Uh, I wanted to get out of trouble. Give me the ball. Give me the ball. Well, Campy would, in his own gentle way, would, would not return the ball fast. He would, he would make the pace slow down for me because I just naturally wanted to get the ball back and get out of trouble. So the pitchers today, I don't see any pitcher that's really excessive in the in the time they take. And I'll ask you a question to answer the sure. question on the board. Uh, how do you think the commercials for TV has impacted the length of the game? That's a great question. So, so let me follow up by asking you a question. Uh, how how long do you think it generally took in between uh, innings uh, back before commercial really, you know, it, it seemed as if it basically, it, it went from one 
a minute spot, if you will, to about three to four minutes that you had to fill? Well, I think the way commercials are presented are, is different. Uh, in my era, which would have been the late 40s to 1960, uh, the announcer himself would do a lot of the commercials. Uh, now they switch to a, a commercial that's been made, and I think those are longer always. But uh, they, they tinker with the timing now, and, and I think they, they, they go to the wrong places sometimes. Uh, the hitter takes a lot of time. And uh, oh, batting gloves, <laughs> they, could, they could save about 10 minutes of the game just <laughs> getting rid of the batting gloves. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm not trying to be a pitcher blaming the hitter, but I'm saying they don't think anything about the hitter pulling on his gloves and off and, and taking a uh, little extra time. Uh, you know, baseball is not a fast game in terms of the clock. Uh, our games used to be in the two-hour range, and many times a pitcher that uh, allows a few hits and there's not too many base runners, uh, it's under two hours. Well, I don't think they even expect it to be under three hours anymore. Um, that may be a little stretch, but uh, baseball is a game that's a lot going on between pitches, and uh, good fans understand that. Uh, there's a lot of things happening. Uh, defensive uh, positions being changed. Uh, uh, the signals that the manager sends from the bench uh, takes up some time in there, but there's always something going on. It appears to the novice watching a baseball game, and why don't they speed the game up? Well, if you if you add in all the things in between pitches that are going on, um, guys are getting a bunt sign or getting a steal sign or uh, there's a lot of things happening that are not part of just watching the ball being pitched and and the fielder's feeling. I appreciate Rob72 uh, letting us know that, uh, unfortunately, we had lost connection to the uh, – uh, the show, so I'm I'm glad to now be calling back in for our last eight minutes. Carl, I'm not sure where we uh, we lost the audience, uh, unfortunately, but um, I, I I was wondering, and I'll go to my my next question then. Uh, I was wondering if there's any specific pitcher out there, um, whether he's still pitching or or maybe you know has been retired for a little bit, that you can remember uh, being very impressed with the way he would uh, pace the game. Well, of course, the pitcher who really used the pace of the game to his big advantage was, uh, uh, okay, Bob Gibson at uh, St. Louis. Bob Gibson always forced the hitter to get in the box and hit because the ball would go back to him from the catcher, and he would be ready to pitch. He forced the hitter to get in. He, he overpowered him. Well, of course, he overpowered him with his stuff, too, but – but he's one example that I remember uh, who he took the advantage of the pitcher having the pace of the game, and he would he would actually overpower the hitter. The hitter didn't have a lot of time to dig in and do all that. He'd fast, he would throw a fastball uh, when the hitter wasn't ready. He'd, he'd quick pitch him. So 
that picture stood out to me as one who who was out there to get the hitter out, and he didn't allow the hitter to have a lot of time to get ready. I thought that was a good advantage. I don't think I ever thought too much about uh, – I, I was never slow, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, when I get in trouble, I want to pitch faster, and Campanella controlled that. And he made a pitcher out of Newcomb as well. Uh, mm. He was really effective in helping Newcomb. Uh, in a big, strong, hard thrower that uh, I, I, helped him keep the pace. I appreciate that you brought up uh, Newcomb because I was just thinking about how, you, you know, I, I, I was driving around New Jersey as a Lyft driver before all of this happened, and they have a Monty Irvin statue in Orange Park in Orange, New Jersey. Um, but I was thinking that I, I looked it up, and it doesn't seem like there's much – uh, honoring Don Newcomb back in Elizabeth, New Jersey. So uh, sup- something I, I kind of want to explore a little bit more as to how they've honored Don Newcomb. And, and uh, since you brought up Campanella again, I'll ask you if, if there's a, a catcher you can remember that impressed you the way Campy did in, in uh, you know after your era. Well, Al Lopez, who I didn't see catch a lot, but he was a he was one of the premier catchers in that era. And uh, the catcher has a lot to do with the, the pitcher, if especially a young pitcher. Um, it's seldom that the manager calls the pitches from the bench, but occasionally with a young pitcher, the manager will actually call the pitches. But with an experienced catcher, then he would expect the catcher to take charge and not let the young pitcher uh, shake him off much or... Uh, try, <clears throat> try to take control of what pitches he was throwing. <clears throat> but uh, the catcher, you know, he's a player <laughs> that sees the whole field. Uh, he's kind of a general, uh, you might say, on the field. Uh, so the catcher has a lot. Some some good catchers will even wave the hitter, or excuse me, wave the, the outfielder over one way or another or bring him in or put him back because he sees it. He sees it better than the manager does from the bench. So a good catcher, has he has kind of in charge of what's on the field. And Campanella did that. And other good catchers uh, would, would do the same. But the manager has to, more or less without saying so, give him the, the uh, authority to move hitters around, uh, pitchers around. Uh, but anyway... My my point is the catcher is kind of the field general. And, uh, so, um, uh, you know, Carl, it looked like for a second we had a, a phone call, but unfortunately uh, that phone call has dropped. I, I apologize to not getting to you fast enough, uh, uh, the 914 area code out there. But, um, I, uh, Carl, you know, obviously there's so many people out there that, that love – hearing what you have to say and, and want to ask you <laughs> questions as well. And, and um, if there's anybody out, we have a, a couple minutes left before uh, we cannot take calls, but by all means, give us a call in the next minute or so, and we can, we can uh, slip a, a phone call in there. Um, you know, Carl, it, it's, it's really so many different directions uh, to go. And, and, you know, I, I just am, I'm, I'm rereading a lot of books right now, trying to get like, the, the current book I'm reading is Bob McGee's The Greatest Ballpark Ever, and, and I know that Bob uh, loves 
talking to you and gives him uh, gives you his best for sure. Um, and uh, you know, it, it we luckily we got the phone call in right now. Nine one four area code. You are here with Carl Erskine on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Hey, gentlemen. Good morning. How are you? Thanks for taking the call. Absolutely. Hey, who, who are we talking to? Uh, this is Rob from the Maranek in Westchester County, New York. Rob, thank you so much. Uh, what do you have to say? Uh, Carl, good morning. It's nice to speak with you finally. I hope you're doing well these days. Uh, just to just to give you a heads up, I do pass by um, the lower part of Brooklyn, and I think of you often because I see the namesake of your exit off the uh, Bell Parkway often when I go towards uh, the Verrazano Bridge. So... When I see uh, Erskine Street on the Bell Parkway, I think of you every single time, sir. <laughs> you know, that's one of the highest honors I've ever had. Uh, I had a lot of teammates that made the Hall of Fame. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I, I don't think there's a prize or uh, any player uh, could possess uh, with pride any more than I do. Having, having the uh, fans or whoever uh, in the city uh, – City Hall that got that street named. <laughs> that is one of the highest honors you could you could ever have for the Brooklyn fans. Yes, yes, it is, and and thank you for taking well, the call. Just just one, one just one more quick question, um, if I may allow, is it, uh, Mr. Erskine? Are are you are you still doing public appearances? Um, I mean, I know in spite of with everything that's going on in 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 the country right now, but were you still doing public? Uh, appearances every once in a while or no are you retired i was from that? doing some when i could travel now i'm 93 years old right now and, and i'm on a walker because i i broke my hip about a year ago but uh yeah i do a lot of phone interviews however and occasionally i'll do interviews uh on the video but uh i don't travel anymore so uh, it really cuts me down locally i might do a, a service club or two but uh, not so much anymore. Okay, understood. But all Rob, right, sir. I we'll appreciate you calling. Yep. All right, thank appreciate you very much, sir. You stay in. well and God bless. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rob, all for right. calling in. I appreciate it. You got it, guys. Thank you. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're about to get cut off uh, from the, the live feed, but you can catch us on the archive right afterwards. Uh, so, Carl... Yeah, um, thank we you. will absolutely thank you. I'm, I'm so happy that he was able to call in, and um, you know, it, it's just you, you're you are uh, obviously just so revered in in uh, uh, Brooklyn, and I always point back to that every time I pass a fire uh, a fireplace uh, fireplace, excuse me. Every time I pass a firehouse in Brooklyn, I think of your. Uh, September 11th story, and I know that right now the the emergency first responders are are working, you know, day and night, 24/7, uh, while everybody else is is at home. And and so I was wondering if you could uh, uh, say a little bit about uh, about those folks. I have a lot of friends who are first responders in my area, but I also have contact with the uh, firehouses in Brooklyn. Believe it or not, I get calls frequently. From uh, one of the one or more of the uh, uh, firemen, uh, because at one time I sent a bunch of books that I had written, Tales from Zydra Dugout, right after 9/11. One of the uh, uh, one of the uh, 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 oh, 
under psychologists or whoever went to the firehouses to kind of uh, uh, help the guys uh, uh, digest what just happened. To they lost over almost 400 firemen in Brooklyn, and uh, so yeah, it it's a bond that it's hard to explain, but. Living and playing 10 years in Brooklyn, living in the neighborhoods, uh, and being in touch with uh, the local uh, barber, the local cab drivers. <laughs> uh, I had a lot of ties to Brooklyn, but one of, them, uh, one of the big ones was with the first responders. Uh, I have several uh, police badges sent to me by uh, members of the police in Brooklyn, uh, and I have a whole list of uh, numbers in my phone uh, journal uh, of uh, firemen in uh, in Brooklyn. So the ties go on and on with me uh, for the people in uh, Brooklyn. I get a lot of mail from people in Brooklyn who lived, grew up there, even saw me pitch. Uh, but, again, I also get 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds uh, saying they read about this history uh, in baseball and uh, – so believe me, uh, I have a morning every morning when I get up and the mail comes. <laughs> I I look at the postmarks, and they come from every place. But Brooklyn people are every place. So that, that was a great tie for me. Well, the the uh, two words Los Angeles are kind of blasphemous uh, when when discussing the Dodgers in Brooklyn. But I will uh, follow up with that and say, can can you kind of compare and contrast uh, with the Los Angeles fans? Because you did get a few years in there out there. Well, you know, uh, the, the Brooklyn fans when they see L.A., they say that means lost again. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, well, the, the climate in the two ballparks, see, I never pitched at Dodger Stadium. I pitched in uh, the Coliseum. The Coliseum was used until Dodger Stadium was built. So I never, I played in a couple of old-timers games at Dodger Stadium. But I pitched the opening game in L.A. in 1958. Uh, there was 80,000 people in the Coliseum. Uh that was, the culture, though, was so different. Uh, Evans Field was close. Everything was close. You could hear the fans talking to you from the mound. And uh, in, in L.A., this big expanse of a football stadium with a, foot, with a baseball diamond skewed in kind of to make it fit, uh, totally different. Uh, opening day with 80,000 people wasn't half as loud as opening day in Evans Field with 35,000. I mean, the raucous fans in Brooklyn, they lived and died with the Dodgers. In L.A., we had to live, play there a long time for the fans to feel connected to the players. Otherwise, they just sat there and watched. A lot of celebrities came to the games in L.A. Um, when I was pitching opening day, uh, I looked over at the dugout about the third or fourth inning, and half the guys were gawking over the st- uh, back of the dugout looking in the stands. There was Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye and Lana Turner and on and on. These holy uh, famous movie stars were coming to the game. <clears throat> but it wasn't like Brooklyn where 
you could hear the fans talking to you uh, on the field. So it took a while for the the really connection to happen in Los Angeles uh, because uh, Mr. O'Malley, he wanted to identify the new Dodgers as L.A. Dodgers. So he didn't say much about or encourage talking about the bums in Brooklyn and, and the old stars in Brooklyn. So it was a changeover that was actually uh, uh, it was actually a style of Mr. O'Malley's to talk only about the L.A. Dodgers. Mm. And even old-timers games, for a long time, L.A. did not have old-timers games because they wanted to break the connection uh, right. from the Brooklyn to, to the new franchise. So that was uh, – that was an experience that was not pleasant for some of us who played our best years in Brooklyn. And going to L.A., <laughs> it was like it proved yourself over again. But, uh, I, you, you mentioned Danny Kaye, um, and uh, just correct me if I'm wrong, but he was a big Dodger fan back in Brooklyn as well, correct? He was, uh, right. I think, I'm not real sure that he was born in Brooklyn. I'm not sure about that. But yeah, he t- he attended a lot of games, and uh, I think he seemed to me like he uh, might have had a little ownership in one of the teams. Uh, that's vague for me right now, but but he was one of the regulars at at uh, in L.A. He was born in Brooklyn, by the way. To confirm, yeah. Wikipedia does say that he was born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, yeah. I, I, we'll we'll finish with this. Uh, if you can. Uh, uh, talk about that 1959 World Championship. It seemed like, like a, a it, it seemed like a very Brooklyn thing to wait 70 something years for a World Championship, have them leave, and then LA just has to wait uh, two years. <laughs> well, of course, uh, that's a mysterious thing about sports. Uh, sometimes other teams have felt uh, the Red Sox. You know, they felt that wall. They couldn't get past it. They finally did, but. In Brooklyn, the mystery to me is the teams that I played on, the 52 team, 53 team, those teams had such great stats. Uh, neither one of those teams won the World Series. Uh, I always thought, and a lot of our players thought, that the 53 team was the best team ever. And uh, But we didn't get the big prize, so, so that taints that uh, idea. 55. We started with uh, a good streak. We got in front, and we never gave it up. We went wire to wire in 55. It looked like it was going to take something like that to finally break the spell. And in 75 years, they hadn't had a World Series. So I think in Brooklyn, they still celebrate the day and the time that the last out was made to make us world champions. But the players were more happy for our fans, I think, than we were for ourselves because the fans had been faithful for so long. And finally, finally, we could give them the, the championship. Yeah, it, it was an amazing day in Brooklyn. Every time October 4th, 1955 comes around, uh, even as, as time fades away, as it always does, it is still celebrated in Brooklyn for sure. And, and finally, the, the World Championship banner, I believe uh, last time I saw it, it was at the Brooklyn Historic Society, but it is back in Brooklyn's hands. So, uh, you know, that, that, is, uh, that is certainly an amazing thing. And 
you mean the world to Brooklyn. You mean the world to to so many baseball fans out there, Carl. And thank you so much for uh, everything you've done, and, and and you know not only for everybody out there, but also for for me. You have been my most prolific guest, and, and I know that we can always figure out something to talk about, Carl. Well, you're very kind, and I'll tell you what I I, I respect every letter I get. Uh, from fans, and uh, so many fans are from Brooklyn or have fam- family in Brooklyn. Uh, it's just amazing to me. And my, I'm 93 years old. I, uh, the last pitch I threw uh, was in '59, <laughs> and to have have this contact, and and certainly people like you who go back and help recall so much. You, you kind of keep us old-time players alive. So thank you for that. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Much more to come over the next few weeks and months and years. So stick with us. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, Sam.